All right. So he says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. It's not just a continuation of Old Testament genealogy. It's not like, okay, you've read of some genealogy, now I'm going to bring you to the next chapter of genealogy. He's bringing us to Jesus the Messiah. He's bringing us to that which is the fulfillment of all that has gone before. Matthew makes this astounding assertion that this is not just another chapter. He's not putting another set of of genealogical records into the mix of things. But he is writing the final chapter on the genealogy of the entire scripture. And this Messiah that he speaks of has come to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who will fill the pages of his gospel and all of the gospels, because that is the whole entire point of them. And remember what gospel means. If you want a good definition of gospel, here's the best one I've ever come across or come up with in terms of piecing together uh, the here and there from people who have defined it. But the gospel is simply good news that is widely proclaimed and gladly received. That is the best definition of gospel you can ever have. It is good news widely proclaimed and gladly received. And for those folks who have immersed in the Old Testament and their heart and their hope is there, not just their head, for those folks who have seen that they're sinners and that the end of the matter of life is death, that life just doesn't keep going, life isn't just a nice little uh, thing to think about and go, okay, life is wonderful and I'm going to retire and uh, do whatever Americans think of when they think of retiring, riding around in golf carts or whatever. But people who think beyond that, this is good news. Jesus the Messiah has come. And Matthew opens with a direct reference to two Old Testament persons who together summarize the core of divine promises. If you wanted to grab a summary of the Old Testament, here it is. All of the promises to Abraham and all of the promises to David. And those are blended together in the Psalms and the prophets. And they represent the core central purposes and promises of redemptive history and redemptive revelation. And it is clear that in this overview, this introduction that Matthew gives to his genealogy, that this is his point, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. And remember in Abraham what we saw, that there are these initial promises in that covenant with Abraham, that his his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Israel was never purposed by God to be an end in itself, to be unto itself, to be isolated. It was never purposed to be that. And the Jews who turned Israel into this Jewish nationalism are invalid. God said that the whole point of calling Abraham was ultimately for all nations. And we have seen that promise presented and elaborated throughout Old Testament history and prophecy. All over the place, there's these statements that the nations will be glad and sing for joy. Um, that, That the promise of God through and to Abraham that covenant with Abraham will be one day fulfilled. So whatever the Messiah will accomplish, this Messiah is going to accomplish things on a grand and global scale. And of course, David. David represents those aspects of divine rule and reign through which God will bring salvation to the nations. The promises and covenants regarding the future Davidic kingship echo throughout subsequent psalms and prophecies They state that there will be a messianic king who will establish a messianic kingdom, a king and a kingdom. Those two themes, we're going to be looking at Isaiah. By the way, just in case I forget or don't get to it, 
You all need to read Isaiah 1 through 11 this week. Next, next week, Lord willing, we're going to be going through. What is this uh, fulfillment of this promise um, <clears throat> that a virgin shall conceive and bear a, fu- a son? And you cannot appreciate fully that verse, Isaiah 7, 14, unless you read it in its total context. And in its total context, there is clearly an emphasis on a coming kingdom and on a coming king. Those are the two thread threads that are they're woven together in those prophecies in Isaiah chapter 1 through 11. So if you can, read those this week and pray to the Lord that he just fill your mind and heart, that the Old Testament will echo in your own soul, not just in, in Matthew. It will not just be an intellectual grasp of things, but the Lord Jesus himself will come and fill you with that sense that he is the ultimate culmination of all those promises, that himself and his kingdom are what those prophecies are all talking about. And so that's what Matthew is saying. You'll have David. There will be a messianic king who will establish a messianic kingdom having worldwide jurisdiction, and this genealogy is about that. So that was Matthew's introduction, so a little bit of a a review on uh, what we've tried to go through over the months previous. And now we want to just sort of quickly finish up this genealogy as it leads into uh, the actual birth of Jesus himself. And just, let's just briefly again ask the Lord to be with us this morning in our minds and hearts. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We ourselves come before your throne. Lord, we're here this morning. Some of us are peppy. Some of us are uh, depressed. Some of us are just kind of blah. Some of us are excited. Some of us are distracted. Lord, we just pray that you would gather our minds and hearts together around this reality as we watch this event, one of the most important events in the history of the universe, where your son, your eternal son, actually enters into a union with a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Lord, there are many things about it that are a mystery, but many things about it we can understand. And just pray, Lord, you would bless this to us as we as we watch this happening before our eyes, reading these Gospels designed by you to bring these things before us as if we were there ourselves watching it happen. Lord, send your own Holy Spirit. You sent your Holy Spirit into Mary's womb uh, to bring Jesus of Nazareth into being. And Lord, just pray that you would have that same spirit in our hearts. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, Matthew's on a real roll. There's all these names that are hard for us to pronounce. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Matthew 1.15. Eleazar, the father of Matthan. Matthan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, who is not the father of anybody. But Joseph is the husband of Mary. What an interesting statement. Matthew has worked through his structured genealogy. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Matthew had sort of structured it and outlined it. Matthew wasn't doing it by accident. Matthew wasn't forgetting things. Matthew didn't have faulty records. Matthew very clearly organizes this genealogy for his own purposes, which nobody knows why. You can try all the commentaries you want. Some will speculate, and I'm glad when they do. Um, They try to be helpful, but we don't know why Matthew arranged the genealogies the way he did. That's one of those questions we'll find out in the new heavens and new earth. We'll say, Matthew... What was on your mind when you dropped a few kings out and dropped a few other people out so you can get 14 and 14 and 14? Uh, we'll find out, and it'll, it'll, it'll make sense when he tells us. But right now, it's just something we just accept. Um, <clears throat> what's really clear 
is that Matthew was not concerned about how he arranged those genealogies. Matthew did not consider that it would lose its credibility in the way he did it. So if anybody comes to you and says, ah, this is one of those, you know, errors in the Bible, the genealogies aren't truly reflective of all the people, just say, it doesn't have to be. We already know in the first verse, if Matthew wants to, he can skip a whole bunch of generations when he says, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He skips a whole bunch of generations when he says that. So we already in the first verse know that you can skip generations and still have a legitimate genealogy. So here we've come to this one, and it's at the end of this, we don't find that Joseph is the father of anybody, but we find this designation. The predictable terminology all of a sudden comes to this unique expression, Joseph, the husband of Mary. And what's clear in this is as he's saying, Eleazar is the father of so-and-so, and Manhattan the father of so-and-so, and Jacob is the father of Joseph. Joseph is the father of no one in this genealogy. So to speak, well, he's kind of left out. Well, he's not, and we'll see why. But he's said to be here the husband of Mary. And that's an important item. He is not the biological father, but Mary is the biological mother. And that's what we have here next. The husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. And here we have the first announcement of the physical birth of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. He's born of a Jewish woman, a Jewish woman whom Luke demonstrates to be also of the bloodline of David. Jesus has been identified as the Messiah in verse 1, and here we have this expression that he is the Messiah, but he came into being, he came into the world, he became a person by a normal human physical birth. From the very beginning of his existence, He is a full human being. As Jesus emerges from Matthew's gospel, he's not a phantom spirit. He is a full human being. There is a conception, there is gestation, and there is birth, like every normal human being. And that's important to understand. And Matthew then reiterates the focus of his genealogy. Jesus is called the Messiah. He's called the Messiah because he is the Messiah, And remember again, verse 1 is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And verse 16 ends the genealogy with Jesus was born who is called the Messiah. Matthew opens his genealogy with this announcement. And Matthew culminates his genealogy with this announcement. The whole point of the genealogy is that Jesus is Messiah. And you say, Steve, why do you labor that point? You've got to remember this. Jesus Christ, Christ is not his second name. It's not his last name. He is Jesus the Messiah. And if you understand the Old Testament, that means everything. Matthew has simply elaborated and expanded on Mark's terse opening gospel verse. Remember, that a lot of folks think that Mark wrote his gospel first. Matthew and Luke sort of expand on it, use its basic outline, use most of the material from Mark, but they expand on it and elaborate the things. And if that's true, then we have Matthew here elaborating that first verse of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew, again, he's just explaining that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the entirety of Old Testament purpose and promise. 
And the rest of our chapter of Matthew is going to demonstrate that Jesus is also the Son of God. And all of the Gospels from the beginning clearly leave no doubt about the identity of Jesus, and that's what's important here. Matthew opens his Gospel, puts in this genealogy, because at the end of reading, you realize there is no doubt about who Jesus is. Now, I think there was a show called Jesus Christ Superstar. It used to be on Broadway when I was young like y'all. And as I remember, one of the things you have in that Broadway show is Jesus is throughout going, well, who am I? Who am I? There's even songs, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar. Do you really know who you think you are, think you know who you are, whatever? But there is this doubt on Jesus' mind in this show as to whether he was the Messiah. Recently, more recently, a few years ago, they had these series on the Bible. Remember that? Where you had uh, uh, an interesting set of people as they would go through. I always thought it was kind of cool. Not biblical, but kind of cool that they had a black Samson. But, or uh, Anyway, so as they go through and they get into the New Testament, there was a lot of good presentation, I thought, until they came to the Lord's Supper. And at the Lord's Supper, they have Jesus sort of confused and Wondering who he is. Because that is what liberal theology tries to present. That Jesus was just sort of this person, just a good guy, nice guy, but kind of vague on his identity. Well, be very clear. Jesus was never vague on his identity, and the Gospels have never been vague on his identity. He is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So it might be good at this point just to take a brief little look at some things. At some point, you'd have to do gospel comparisons. And this is just here to sort of give you a sense of the prologues, comparing the prologues of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll also see in this what is my approach to presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ in terms of a preaching strategy. I've tried to capture in these columns here under Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John their basic prologues, and what are sort of the, the big outlines or big components of these prologues, because it's here that they kind of differ with each other, and they have their uniqueness. One of the things to understand is, first of all, as you look at these prologues, though there may be uniqueness, there is some similarity. There's similarity, first of all, and then each of these prologues, there's focus on a particular person. In Matthew, we're seeing that the focus is on Joseph. We'll see that more as we get through verses 18 and following. Matthew focuses on Joseph. Mark, well, he just has really just one verse there, and he focuses on Jesus. Luke focuses on Mary. And the Gospel of John focuses on John the Baptist. So as you read the first chapters of the Gospels, that's kind of what you see from that. Now, I know someone could pick on that, but I'm just trying to give a real high-level perspective on what these differences are. They're all focusing on a person, but they're focusing on different persons, which explains the difference in material. People come to you and say, oh, the Gospels are different, you can't trust them. I'm like, well, they're different for reasons. Not only are they witness testimony, but the Gospel writers had different purposes, at least in these prologues. Now, when you see the prologues of Matthew and Luke, you see that you have the focus on Joseph, and he is sort of the culmination of the genealogy in Matthew, whereas Mary, the focus is on Mary, and she is the culmination of the genealogy there. And so just from a high-level perspective, you see 
why there are those differences in genealogy. But something very similar in all four Gospels, it's all there. They all open up proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. There is no question that they state this. Matthew, of course, genealogy is nothing but Messiah. Begins and ends with Messiah. That's its whole purpose. Mark, when he declares who is Jesus, he says, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Luke, when Gabriel comes to Mary, explains to her that what is going to be conceived in her womb is going to inherit the kingdom and the throne of his father David. He is Messiah. And John clearly says that the word was made flesh, that grace and truth, or rather the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus, the Messiah. So they all declare Jesus to be the Messiah, and they all in their own way declare Jesus to be a human and divine person. In Matthew, we're going to read about a conception by the Holy Spirit and a real birth. There is this joining of human and divine together. In Mark, there is just this simple declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And in our day, because of all the debate, it's better to read Jesus is God the Son. Because that's what it means in Mark's Gospel. In Luke, we read about a conception and a birth again. The Holy Spirit comes, there is conception, and there is birth. There is this divine human person. And John, who reaches back to the very eternal essence of the Son and says that the Word was made flesh, incarnation, this eternal Word became flesh, was bound together in one unique human person, Jesus of Nazareth. Surely we have here Jesus as a human divine person again. The identity of Jesus in the Gospels is never in question. What's only been in question is whether you're going to believe it or not. And those people who make a living by being so-called New Testament scholars, but who live by the rationalistic principles of the Enlightenment, they reject these things not because they have any evidence or because there's a legitimate alternative if you read the Gospels, or that the Gospels are vague. They reject it because they just don't want to believe it. And so when you read the Gospels, the only material we have in the history of the human race about Jesus of Nazareth, if you read those Gospels and accept them for what they say, Jesus is divine and human. He is God the Son, born of a woman, born of a virgin. This is the clear message of the Gospels. And finally, all these Gospels in their genealogies They have varying amounts of material before they arrive at. They all arrive at John the Baptist. And so that's what I'm doing is I'm going through each of the prologues and taking them down to John the Baptist. And then when we finally get all the Gospels to John the Baptist, then we'll probably be merging those Gospels together into a historic flow of the life and ministry of Jesus. So they all have this synchronized narrative that synchronizes at John the Baptist. Now, Matthew continues and sort of finishes and summarizes his genealogy. Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. In case you didn't count them, he does that for you. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And that's where he stops. So in picture form, you have Abraham to David, you can count them, 14. You have David to the deportation to Babylon, you can count that, there's 14. And from that deportation to Jesus the Messiah, 
is 14 generations. And so now we come to the real material that I want to get to this morning to get started. Matthew 1.18. Matthew has introduced Joseph and Mary as the culmination of genealogies. But in doing so, he raised some eyebrows by indicating that Jesus was not, or rather Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. So if that's as far as you read and the kids interrupted you or the lights went out and that's all you'd read, you'd be going there, well, what's going on here? He talks about a genealogy. He talks about this Jesus of Nazareth. But Joseph's not the father. Mary's the mother. We know that. But Joseph's not the father. What is the deal? And so Matthew now has to sort of explain all that. That's where he was leading to. He was leading to because it is how things happened. And so Matthew now begins that explanation of how this birth of the Messiah took place, where Mary was the mother, but Joseph was not the biological father. So Matthew 1.18 starts out, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. This is what he's getting to. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So it's interesting. We have Mary. Again, she's declared to be the mother. She was betrothed to Joseph. Now one of the things we tend to do is we tend to think that betrothal in the ancient world was kind of like engagement in the modern world. And that is absolutely 100% invalid. Betrothal in the ancient world was a marriage. If you were to start drawing up the equations, engagement might be in the ancient world discussions about betrothal, and modern marriage in the ancient world would be the betrothal. That is where there was legal things transpired, if there was any legal things to do. That is where any official ceremonies transpired, if the culture had any official ceremonies. But do not confuse ancient betrothal with the modern concept of marriage. There is nothing like that. What happened was, a woman was betrothed to a man. They were legally married. But they did not come together until after a certain period of time. Maybe there's things to do, things to arrange. The the social world back then was very different than our world today. But there was a point in time where the woman was brought to the home of the man, this sort of bridal homecoming, as they call it. And at that point, you might have some festive celebration. We see that in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, where Jesus is at that celebration in Cana of Galilee. It was sort of a wedding, but really what it was, was this final homecoming. It wasn't a wedding like we would think of. And so, when you see that his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, Mary is clearly married at the time. But... What has come together, what is brought together by Matthew, and the fact that is pointed out, but it's before this bridal homecoming, before they came together. Matthew makes it clear that Joseph was not yet taken, had not yet taken Mary into his home. They had not become intimate in any way. Mary could rightly be called at this point a chaste young woman, or in other terms, a virgin. Or if you were Greek, and we'll be looking at this next week, so I'll just sort of throw the words out there so you can start to get familiar. A Parthenon, that would be the Greek word for an actual virgin. Or a Neonis, that would be the word for a young woman. Or if you were a Hebrew, 
You would say that Mary was a Betula, a virgin, or an Alma, a young woman who most likely was unmarried, as we look at the material on that next week. But here are these terms that could be used of Mary, and it's important because when Matthew goes on to say that she and all this activity fulfills an Old Testament prophecy, that terminology becomes significant. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, something happened. She was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph and Mary were in the prime of their youth. That's my guess. I don't think they were old. Certainly, by our terms, they were no way were they old. Probably way younger than we would imagine people should be getting married at. But it was a different world, a different social order. They had everything to look forward to as a married couple. And so both of them were probably thinking in these terms, I get to grow out, I get to, leave, get to grow up, I get to leave the home, I get to do life my way, as it were. All those things as a kid that you think of when you're leaving home. Um, I want to be a, my own person, and you're supposed to think that way. You're supposed to become your own person. Just don't do it with rebellion. Do it with peaceableness. And then comes the devastating news. Mary was experiencing all the signs of early pregnancy. And just like any pregnancy, she had the hormonal up and downs. Going to be different with her than other people. Everyone experiences, experiences this hormonal up and down differently. She very possibly was having morning sickness. She was showing all the signs of somebody who was pregnant. And we're not giving any details. It just says she was found to be with child. Now, if we were to hop over and read Luke's gospel, we would know this was no surprise to her, for before this ever happened, an angel visited her and said, you are going to become pregnant and you are going to have a child. So it was no surprise to Mary, but for everybody else who would be in the know on this, and it might have just been a very small circle, anybody else, they're going to start wondering what's going on. And at some point, Mary had to let Joseph know, because at some point, everybody was going to know. And so she only had this window of time to tell him before it became obvious. And Luke, again, fills in the gaps that we might have about the human details of that. But she was found to be with child. She was found, in the Greek it reads literally, to have an embryo in the womb, in the, in the belly. She was, had a child in the belly. What are our phrases today? They've got a kid in the cooker. You know, that's, that's how they would describe it. But look very quickly, and without any hesitation, without any reservation, tells us that this child came to be not by human instrumentality, but by the agency of the Holy Spirit. While Matthew is vague on the details, He's clear and specific on the source of this pregnancy. The conception is the result of the agency of the Holy Spirit taking the place of a normal male contribution. This child is here. This child has come into being because of the Holy Spirit. In modern scientific terms, the Holy Spirit has miraculously supplied 23 male chromosomes. Yes, male. <laughs> Um, people get all distressed about that, but that's the science, folks. Uh, you can't disregard the math. So the Holy Spirit created out of nothing in the womb of Mary 23 male chromosomes that did the job of a normal human procreation. 
I was sort of looking things up and I saw this kind of as a really interesting brief summation of how things happen mechanically in terms of a human conception in the womb of a woman. At conception, the embryo receives 23 chromosomes from the mother's egg and 23 chromosomes from the father's sperm. These pair up to make a total of 46 chromosomes. Pairs 1 through 22 are identical or nearly identical. And the 23rd pair consists of the sex chromosomes, which are either X or Y. So that's a clear <clears throat> statement of what was going on, that the Holy Spirit supplied the 23 chromosomes that the father's sperm would normally supply. So the agency of the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned again in Matthew 1.20, is clearly stated. Luke, in his parallel passage in chapter 1 of his gospel, <clears throat> states this very thing again. The child is going to be begotten by the Holy Spirit. This is a matter of Christian faith. If we start the Bible out by, or the New Testament out, and start thinking that this may not be true, how can something like this happen? Then you might as well just shut the book. Because everything about Jesus as Messiah demands that he is a divine human person. Everything. He has to be someone who is without sin, where he cannot make a sacrifice for sin. He has to be someone who has the capability and the power to rise from the dead and go to the right hand of God and spend an eternity there administering a new covenant. He has to be someone who can rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is no human person who can accomplish these things. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, must have been begotten by the Holy Spirit because there is no other way that he could become and fulfill all of the actions of the office of Messiah. Now, the world of the first century, especially for Jews, the divine intervention was part of their worldview. God entering in, intervening, where there would be a normal human conception. There is now the Holy Spirit supplying that half of the conception that a male would. To a first century person or a Jew, this would not be something wholly strange. It would be a new and unique thing, but they wouldn't think that it couldn't happen because in the world of the first century, God and gods did everything. Nothing was too hard for God, especially if you were a Jew. Nothing was too hard for God who created the heavens and the earth. Nothing is too hard for God who made Adam from the dust of the ground. Nothing would be too hard for God. It would not be hard or impossible for God by the Holy Spirit to establish this conception. And so this also, this terminology of the Holy Spirit, if you read the Old Testament, you encounter the Holy Spirit everywhere. So it is only on modern ears that something like this would sort of not ring true. In the world of the first century, and particularly among the Jewish readers who would be the primary target audience of Matthew's gospel, this would all make sense. The only question would be, is Jesus really the Messiah? The Holy Spirit. Be with child by the Holy Spirit. And if you continue thinking this through, some today would call this a fable, not because there's any evidence to the contrary, not because things like this can't really happen. 
People who say there's no miracle are just taking a position and just declaring it to be so. They have no evidence that there's no miracle. They come up with that on their own opinion. They come up with that as a starting point for evaluating everything. They don't come to that conclusion because all the facts lead you to it. They come to that conclusion because that's the starting point that they choose. They take on this enlightenment rationalism which denies any and all miraculous intervention. And from that standpoint, then they make their assessments of the gospel. But I'd like to sit down and speak with folks who are of that mindset who think that God can't intervene into the human race, who think that God can't create the heavens and the earth, who think that all these kinds of things are just supposedly fables that people resort to because they can't explain scientific phenomena. And that's just not so at all. I happen to be a scientist. I am a person who every day I have to deal with logic. So I am what you might call a data scientist, not in the formal sense, But in the real real practical sense, I am a practicing data scientist. I know how the world works in terms of logic. Logic drives the universe. Something you can't see or touch drives every entire thing in the universe. Information is the stuff that the universe lives on. And I deal with it every day. And so I am not an unscientific person. I am not a non-scientific person. Any of you who ever gets in a fight with a computer, anybody here get in a fight and argument with a computer, have you ever won? Ever. Anybody. Okay? Why do you not win when it comes to computers? Because the universe is rational. Because of the law of non-contradiction. Because the universe is predictable. Because God has established the universe on incredible principles of logic. And even his material universe, which is but the expression of about 130 chemical elements. And I always remember this. I probably said this before, but I keep saying it to you because this is something that when you're talking to people on the street, just say, hey, if you happen to know there's 130 elements in the periodic table. God built an entire universe from those things. And he could build an entire universe that holds together because they hold together on logical, rational principles. The universe is absolutely rational. You do not get up in the morning and put your shoe on your ear. You put it on your foot because you live in a rational universe. And it is a fable not to use rationality to explain away the virgin birth or creation or anything that God has done. It is a fable to try to go to science and logic and come up with evolution. That's the true fable. Imagine this. To declare that there's no God, that the universe is just a bunch of material that's been around forever, and it just self-organized without any guiding principles, self-organized into this complex universe that we see today. And just self-organized into living organisms so fragile that they can barely make it. And yet somehow they survived all of this process. Folks, there's no science or statistics to prove that. Science and statistics disproves that fable that the universe is self-existent 
and that the universe is self-organizing. That's the true fable. And so when we come to this reality that God himself, by his own Holy Spirit, created 23 chromosomes in that womb of that Virgin Mary, that is not a fable. That is something very doable by God. Matthew's statement, when you look at it in the light of science and statistics, is very rational and very believable. Because the only explanation for the universe in which we live and for all the stuff in it is that there is a God who is the most massive engineer you could ever conceive of, who himself brought something out of nothing and put it all together in this rational fashion. And that is what is happening here. The Holy Spirit was at work. And never forget it. The Holy Spirit that hovered over the earth and brought the earth and all the stuff of it out of of that watery mass that was there is the same Spirit who came into Mary's womb and brought into being a real human person. Now Matthew is very detailed or... is very detailed about identities. He's not big on details, but he's very detailed about when it comes to identities. It was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it's Joseph who is her husband. He's very clear as he works through this. He clearly, whenever he describes Joseph, he is clearly using terminology that distances him from being the biological father of Jesus. And we also see in this statement, Joseph, her husband, that betrothal, again, is a real and legal marriage. And I was thinking, I didn't have time to put it in my slides, but just go over to 2 Corinthians real quick, chapter 11. There's an interesting statement that uses the concept of betrothal to describe salvation. Second Corinthians 11, verse 1, again from the ASV, I would that you would bear with me a little foolishness, but indeed you have to sort of bear with me. Verse 2, for I am jealous over you, Corinthians, with a godly jealousy. For I espoused you or betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so as Paul is looking at these Corinthians, he's thinking of this betrothal example this betrothal paradigm. And he says, I came to, to Corinth and I preached the gospel and I espoused you or betrothed you to Jesus. And now I have the job of keeping you guys on track until you finally are presented to Jesus in that sort of bride homecoming when he comes back again. And he says, there I want to present you as a pure virgin. I want you to keep your chastity, your spiritual chastity, until then. So Joseph is her husband here. Clearly, she's been espoused to him. And this betrothal concept is used in other places. The marriage supper of the lamb isn't so much the betrothal supper as it is the bridegroom homecoming. But Joseph is her husband. That clear identity is maintained and clear, but he's also a righteous man. He's a righteous and godly man. And it's very interesting that when you look at all the people who are the major players around the conception and birth of Jesus Christ, they are all declared to be righteous. 
In Luke chapter 1, verse 6, it says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and walked in the ways of the law of the Lord, blameless. In Luke 2, 25, when Simeon is coming at the birth of Jesus, it says he was a righteous man. And here in our passage in Matthew, Joseph is said to be a righteous man. He's upright. Now, truly righteous people, not pharisaical righteousness, not self-righteousness, but true righteousness comes from people whose consciences have been made alive to the realities of what is good and what is evil. Kind of like the starting point in the book of Genesis, right? Righteous people understand righteousness. They understand good and they understand evil. Something the human being should do because God understands these things. And we're to be in his image. But a righteous person understands these things from the standpoint of loving and being and doing righteousness. Not perfectly. No human being can be after the fall of Adam. But nevertheless, blameless. Not going off into the weeds in big ways where you would have to have blame and a bad conscience and things that you just shouldn't be doing. And to a righteous person, unrighteousness is what? It's not something you want to experience. It's not something you want to be a part of. It's something that sort of gives you a reaction. And here's Joseph being a righteous man, finding out that his wife, his betrothed wife, had engaged in infidelity, at least that's what appeared, it's going to hit him hard. There's a statement in Titus, I just go to the wisdom of it all the time in this world. Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. Hence, Christians are usually pretty naive to what goes on in the world. Because we go, well, gosh, I wouldn't do that. The only reason I would do that is if I was really thinking badly. And gosh, why would they do it? Well, they must be thinking badly. How can somebody go to sleep at night? How do these politicians ever go to sleep at night? To the pure, all things are pure. And so you just can't understand the evil that's going on in the world. You don't get it. It makes no sense and it's repulsive. Well, this was Joseph. He's a righteous man and this infidelity no doubt hit him hard. He had assumed that Mary was a woman of good character because she was. He had no sense that she would ever engage in this kind of infidelity. And all of a sudden it happens. Think of the confusion that must have come on in her mind, on his mind. At first he probably said, and again, we don't know how it was made known to him. But first he's like, she's probably shaking his head. He's like, no way. Mary would never do something like that. But then as the reality starts to hit, as it starts to sink in, but she is pregnant. He himself knows he hasn't been involved. So under normal circumstances, somebody else must have been involved. That's the only conclusion he could make. And now he's discovering and having to come to this knowledge that his wife, whom he chose to be a woman because she was a woman of good character, now appears to be a philanderer. Just imagine how overwhelmed Joseph was. Imagine the confusion of soul. Imagine the back and forth going on as a righteous person is trying to understand why someone would do something so unrighteous and foolish. But he was not only a righteous man, he was also a man of kindness. He was not a Pharisee. His righteousness was intermixed with the love of God. 
God is light and love. Those two blend perfectly together. And any human being who knows God is going to have a blend of light and love. Those two things will always be there at work in someone's life. There's no division between them. So here is Joseph thinking, finally coming to the conclusion he's got to accept what's happened. He's got to think about all the ramifications going on. I mean, it's going to be soon apparent to everybody what's happened with her. He's going to have to have some kind of explanation for it. What is he going to say? He doesn't feel he can, you know, truly take her to be his wife. He doesn't want to make her a public example because he, you know, doesn't hate her for this. Maybe confused, but there's no hatred. And so he's thinking, how can I deal with this thing? How can I remain righteous and not have her go on public display in disgrace. He did not want to disgrace her. He sought to mitigate everything that was happening. And he's a man truly who knew Micah, chapter 6 and verse 8. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good, but what does the Lord require of you? He requires three things. What are they? Do you all, do you all know that song? Do you all have a song to it? I have one in my head to do justly, to be righteous and upright, to love kindness, literally in the Hebrew, to love love, and to walk humbly with your God. This was who Joseph was, and he did not want to disgrace her. He did not want to make a public show of her. So he's trying to figure out a way. And so what he did is he said, well, I'm just going to send her away secretly. And what that means, instead of exercising Deuteronomy 22, all right, in which, in verses 23 and 24, it talks about what happens when a woman who is betrothed is found to be dallying. People get stoned, according to the Old Testament law. Whatever they did in that first century among the Jews, whether they stoned or not, we're not sure. But Joseph said, look, I don't want her to have to be face that kind of justice. I don't want to just make it publicly known and let her hang out there on her own and deal with all the fallout from it herself. Instead of that, he said, I'm going to exercise Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to give her a bill of divorcement. Now, that could be done privately because it's a husband thing. You didn't have to go to a court or a judge or anybody to give a bill of divorcement. You could do this at home. At-home divorces. All the lawyers in America would be aghast. We want a part of that. You know? uh, we want it to be easy so we can have lots of them uh, and get lots of money, but we got to be part of it. But no, back then, a husband just wrote a bill of divorcement and handed it to his wife. And so that's what he planned to do, and he was planned to do it in private. He was going to do it secretly. He was going to do it in the midst of tears, a completely broken heart. Uh, he knew that no matter how he handled it, all were going to bear disgrace at some point, but he was going to manage it the best he could. And then God comes in. God shows up. And this is a real sort of, uh, I don't know, exercise in how to have guidance in your life. I'm sure Joseph was trying to, you know, figure out, it says he was considering these things. Surely he consulted the word of God. Surely he prayed. Surely he might have even gone to people very close to him. Maybe, we don't know. And sought some counsel. Maybe he did. But he's, he's going over this in his mind. Trying to come to grips with how can he manage this? How can he remain righteous and yet put her away in private? Not have her bear the full brunt of what has apparently gone on. And in doing so, God then appeared to him. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, 
Now again, in the first century, angels appearing would not be something new or unfamiliar. It would just be surprising if it happened to you. You're not expecting angels to appear to you because if you're walking humbly with your God, you figure you're a humble person. You don't really mean that much to anybody. Why would an angel ever appear to you? Angels only appear to important people. And a humble person do not, does not see themselves as very important. By the way, just, that's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. <clears throat> and David was a, a poor in spirit person. And an angel appeared to him. So there he is, wondering with God, praying to God, what should I do? And he's come to a conclusion, and he's probably about to exercise it. And the Lord shows up with the answer that David was not expecting, but at least an answer from him, from God, that he had been hoping for. Other than that, he just had to manage his own working through with the word of God and applying it. And that's what it is in our day. When you have to come to a decision, you do the best you can with the word of God. Find out other people. Maybe they can help you. Maybe they can clarify things. Think it through. Meditate. Pray. Consult. But in the end, as you're doing it, you trust that the Lord will direct your steps. What does the proverb say? A man devises his ways, and the Lord directs his steps. And here we have an incredible example of that. Here is this Joseph devising a way the best he could, and God intervenes and directs his steps appropriately. True guidance in the Bible. Now, there are angels throughout the Bible, especially regarding the conception, birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They're always showing up. <clears throat> and Joseph could, in his dream, clearly distinguish between the confusion of dreams and the speaking of an angel to him. And I can testify to that. I've had dreams from God. Most of my dreams are awful, and they're miserable, and they just, they're just a myriad of crazy and confusion. But when the Lord shows up in your dream, you know it's God, and there's clarity, and you know with certainty that it's God. There's no doubt. There's no need to go, well, should I interpret this dream or that dream? When God shows up, things are clear. And he says, Joseph, you son of David. Joseph is reminded of his status before God. And we are also reminded in this passage. God appears to Joseph in his time of need. He needs guidance. He needs understanding. He needs perspective. He needs to know how to deal with this. This is the most important thing that's ever happened in his life, and it's awful. And God shows up. He sends an angel. And the first thing he says is, Joseph, you son of David. Joseph, remember, you are the one who is heir of all those promises that are in the Old Testament. You are beloved of God, as it were. You are the son of David. Matthew brings this up because God brought this up. This whole passage here, remember, is about how Joseph is dealing with things. Luke shows us how Mary dealt with things. But here, Joseph, who is the legal heir and who holds the legal strings and keys to all of this, this is what is being focused on. Jo Joseph, you are a son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. All the things he'd wondered about. Should I? Shouldn't I? Is it righteous for me to do it? It certainly changes a whole lot of perspective. Can I openly take Mary into my house after all this has happened? And he says, don't be afraid to take her into your home. And then he states again, for the child who has been conceived in her, the work of the Holy Spirit here is conception. Not birth. We talk about the virgin birth, but what we really mean is the virgin conception. Because everything else after that was just like everybody else's pregnancy. Ups, downs, 
But for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And again, we have the clear identity of Jesus. So that is Matthew's gospel. He opens up with this explanation, this presentation of who is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the culmination of a genealogy going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He is a true human being who was born of a woman through all of the natural processes of gestation and birth. He is a unique human being because he was conceived of none other than the Holy Spirit. A human egg in Mary's womb united together with what God created in terms of divine. And in the midst of this, the eternal Son of God became united to a true humanity. And we read on these, this paragraph here exactly when and how that happened. But it still remains a mystery. That mystery can, uh, is discussed in some other places, which we will at some point look at. But Lord willing, next week we want to see that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. You see, people will come to you and they will say, you know, this virgin conception of Jesus, this divine human, well, there's lots of stories about that in the ancient world. Number one, all those stories don't even compare to this story. It's about demigods. It's about gods fighting in heaven and having intercourse with other gods or with people. That's not even close to the story we have here. And furthermore, none of those stories have 4,000 years of prophecy behind them. And that's what we'll see next week. That what happened here is not something that should be a surprise to anybody other than, well, it finally occurred and here's the, in, here's the person in whom it occurred with. That God had predicted this would happen from Genesis chapter 3 onward. God predicted that a human being would be brought into union with the divine and a savior would be born. So this morning, if you're here and you don't have Jesus as a savior, just think of this. Jesus is not just somebody good who can help you out in life. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has the power to save you out of the life you're in and bring you to himself in spirit and give you the very life of God into your own soul. He is the one who has the power and the authority to forgive your sins. There are people that go through things in life where they just say, you know, I've done so many bad things, I can't even forgive myself. So you let sort of time kind of bury the past and hope you can forget about it, but there are always those things gnawing at your soul. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is the only one in the universe who can forgive your sin. You cannot forgive yourself. When you say, I did so many bad things, I can't forgive myself, you're right. You can't. 
You can wish you hadn't done them. You can regret that you did them. You can do all those things, but you can never get to the bottom of your soul and have that forgiveness that washes away the guilt and shame of your sin. Only a God-man can do that. And if you're a Christian here today and Satan's been throwing that wet blanket on you like he always does, he's been slowly but surely moving you away from acceptance with God and Jesus Christ to, well, you know, you need to be righteous, you need to be holy, and you're not doing really good in that area, and God's just not loving you as much as he loved you last week, and then it goes from not loving you to now he's despising you, and who are you? I mean, Satan just moves you slowly but surely away from that reality that you are reconciled to God and that Jesus died for all your sins. Then look at this this morning. Here is God the Holy Spirit. Before your eyes, looking at the narrative, watching this happen 2,000 years ago, where he brought into being the person Jesus of Nazareth, who ultimately is now at the right hand of God through a Roman cross and can forgive your sin all the way to the bone. Believe on him. Trust in him. Tell Satan to take a hike and renew and restore your relationship with God based not on how well you've been doing or not, but based on the blood of the Son of God and your determination to get back out of the weeds and follow him. David was a righteous man. Elizabeth was a righteous woman. Zacharias was a righteous man. Simeon was a righteous man. God wants righteous people. And all the people around Jesus when he was being conceived and born were all righteous people. And all the people around Jesus now We're supposed to be righteous people. If you've gotten off into the weeds, then just come back and be one of those worshipers of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that this record, this historic record that is the culmination of thousands of years of genealogy, genealogy, Lord, that you have watched over, this record is true, this record is real, this record is believable. Uh, far more believable than anything the evolutionary scientists want to throw at us. Believable because it makes sense. Believable because it comports with reality that we know and experience every day. Lord, we just thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you did this miracle. You created in the womb of Mary a conception. You took her egg and you added to it your chromosomes and you produced Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Son of God. Thank you for him, Lord. Ever increase our faith in him and ever increase our ability to proclaim him to this scientific generation that's oh so wise in their own eyes but has turned their wisdom into foolishness. Lord, give us grace and ability to speak to it, the words of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.